Welcome to Informed Aging, a podcast about health, help, and hard decisions for older adults. I'm Robin Roundtree, a former family caregiver, and I now work with the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center. With me is my co-host, Edith Gendron. She's the Chief of Operations for Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, a Positive Approach to Care certified trainer and consultant, former family caregiver with well over 30 years of experience in the industry. The thoughts and opinions expressed belong to Edith and I, not our wonderful employers and sponsors. So if you do want to get mad, get mad at us and not at them. Before making any significant changes in you or your person's life, please consult your own experts. We're going to be back with our guest, Tom Campbell. He's going to talk about what to do when you, the assisted living that you have chosen for your loved one is not working out, so stay tuned. Senior Helpers is the only home care agency offering a revolutionary new way to approach senior care, the Life Profile Assessment. This data-based app is a crucial tool in helping seniors age safely and successfully at home. Combined with our proven in-home care programs and trained caregivers, the Senior Helpers Life Profile is leading the way to better outcomes for our clients. For more information, log on to SeniorHelpers.com. For over 37 years, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center has served as a central Florida-based grassroots nonprofit and community resource center dedicated to providing support and hope for families and individuals caring for someone they love who is living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia-related illness. The ADRC empowers caregivers with the knowledge, support, skill, and strategies through a variety of programs to help them confidentially prepare for the challenges that lie ahead. To learn more, visit their website at adrccares.org. That's adrccares.org. We're back with Tom Campbell, CEO of Tom Campbell and Associates. He provides management, consulting, and training service to assisted livings throughout Florida. You do a lot of hard work, and we appreciate what you do. You're welcome. Thank you. So you, you've done your homework, or you haven't done your homework. Your loved one is in an assisted living facility or memory care, and it's not working out. Now, Edith, you wanted us to define exactly what memory care is. And Tom, according to the law? There is no definition for memory care. In fact... In the ALF law itself, which is Florida Statute 429, there's very few references to residents with Alzheimer's disease, or as the state says, Alzheimer's disease and related disorders. They call it ADRD training. So most of the references in the law for memory care or for an Alzheimer's resident relate to the fact that when signs and symptoms of the disease appear. We have 30 days to notify the physician of that. Other than that, it's really related to the training. So there's, they do not, the state does not separate out or carve out any special regulations. There's no specialty license for memory care, even though in my humble opinion, it would make sense to do so. All right. So consumer beware you can just call it memory care, but that doesn't mean anything. You need to get into the training and staffing and everything like that. You need to understand what each ALF means when they say memory care. 
Right. Because, as Thomas pointed out, there's no definition for it. And another thing that we run into with um, phone calls and consumers is, well, no, no, my mom's not in an ALF. She's in memory care. But she is indeed in a licensed ALF. And ALF is assisted, assisted living, living facility. Right. Yeah. ALF is, yes, often and prefer, preferably called a community. All right. <laughs> so we found a place. And let's say you're not impressed with the staff. Now, staffing levels are not what they could be, not what they should be, in my opinion. Um, but that is both a business decision and, you know, what they believe is best for their residents. Um, talk to me about staffing levels. Well, in the state regulations, the state of Florida does not uh, utilize a staff-to-resident ratio approach. Really? No. They do minimum staff hours a week based on your census. So, for example, if you have five or less residents in your ALF and there are many five- and six-bed homes, you have to have at least one staff member on duty 24-7. That's 168 hours total. That's a week. Okay. Okay. When you get from 6 to 10, it goes up 44 additional hours. And then for every 10, it goes up 41, 41, 41, 40, 41, 41, 42. Anyway, it's this... Wow. Yes, I know. And here's the thing about it, Robin, is, is that... The table that is in the regulations related to staffing is so old. The people who made that stuff up, they're all dead. Mm. And I can't even find anybody can tell me what the heck they were thinking. Why didn't they just do a straight 42 all the way across the board? 42 meaning? For every 10 residents, 42 additional hours. Okay. Yeah. So what I have found, though, is despite what the standards are and the regulations, most ALFs have ample enough staffing related to that. The places where we typically might find less staffing would be in a smaller home in some cases or on the night shift in bigger ALFs because the state doesn't tell you how to allocate your shifts. It just tells you what minimum hours are per week. So you could have one person taking care of 40 the last, the Well, the last uh, research I did on the night shift was nationwide. The staff-to-resident ratio on the night shift in an ALF is 50 to 1. Oh, that's But awful. that's why they rely on all those bells and whistles and the fire programs and all that good stuff as well. Uh, fire is probably one of the biggest issues that nobody talks about or potentials for fire and people getting harmed because of levels of care. Um, that's probably one of our biggest growing issues. But based on what I know, we haven't had a lot of fires. Last one we had was in Melbourne, and, and everybody came out of there fine. And this was a 12-story building. So, But I'm just thinking, in continents alone, if you're one staff member for 50 people— you're doing one thing all night. You're doing one-to-one. Get this, bathing. Bathing is one-to-one. Yeah. If you're assisting with a bath, it's one-to-one. If it takes you 30 minutes, you have one-on-one care for 30 minutes to do that bath. Some well, 49 people aren't getting assistance. Right. So here you get this one. <laughs> Y'all may not have thought of this, but I have. We're going through a generational and cultural change in assisted living. The generation of people we serve today, who I like to call the meat and potatoes crowd, 
Mm -hmm. okay, who came from the 30s and the 40s, and they just want meat and potatoes, are going to be replaced by 78 million people called baby boomers. And we are a special group of people. <laughs> and the thing about us is that it's different than our current generation. Is our current generation we serve, they like to bathe three times a week in a little sponge bath in between. Not us baby boomers. We're going to want to be bathed every day. Yep. So I say to my students in my class, how many residents do you have? 110. You got to bathe them all every day. How long is it going to take you? Well, about a week. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to tell you what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to form a position, and they're going to be bath teams. They're bathing teams. They do nothing but go in and bathe people. Could you imagine, Robin, if you were one of my residents and I said, hey, Robin, your shower visit tonight's at 2 a.m. in the morning. Oh, I'm not going to be happy about that. I'd be asking for a discount, to be honest with you. And I, I like the team approach because we, we already talked about one-on-one, but it is often not sufficient. Right. Sometimes, especially when we have cognitive changes, it needs to be two-on-one, and I've actually seen it really required to have three-on-one, mm-hmm. two persons to kind of manage the distressed response, and the third person to actually do the cleansing. Yeah. So. It's all about acuity of need. That's right. correct. It's kind of like transferring. We, the assistance of more than one person to transfer from bed to wheelchair, chair to bed or whatever, it says the assistance, the regulations say the assistance of more than one person is permitted. Well, I prefer a two-person transfer all day long. Period. Mm-hmm. It's safer for everybody involved, but it's staff intensive. And some people in AL world don't even know that you can do a two-person transfer. They've been told that they can't do a two-person transfer. And that's not what the regulations say. The cultural change I alluded to earlier is that firstborn children, uh, firstborn children to immigrants to America become Americanized and probably will not take care of their loved one at home. And that's going to create special issues as well, from communication to food to how we think. Yeah. All of this is thing. These are things that I've actually experienced personally as an operator. So, Whew. okay, lots of complications. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So, you think the assisted living where mom is, the staffing is bad. You didn't look into that before um, you moved her in. Is that a reason enough to move her out, or should you just bring in private duty? And I guess that depends on the money in the bank account. And and, and having financial resources is helpful. I think what I would like to see as a family member, if I was in a, if my loved one went to a building and things went sideways, I would like to know that the person I'm talking to, whether it's the DON or the administrator of the ALF, was receptive to the point of looking at the, actually how they re- perceived and how they received any of the issues that I had and how they responded. A lot of times you're going to get the initial emotional response as a family member when you bring up an issue with the ALF staff. The, usually the initial response people get is frustration or annoyance and all of that because mm-hmm. it's, oh, no, not another complaint. You know, well, that's absolutely completely the opposite way to take. So I think for me, depending on how the response I got back from just my complaint would probably give me a good gauge on where we're headed in the future. Okay. Then if we come up with a plan, 
you know, putting a plan together on to address the issues I have is great. But if we don't follow the plan or implement it, all it is is just a plan. And that happens a lot of times. I could sit all day long and tell you what we're going to do for your family member, Robin. But if I don't do it or act upon it, then that's strike two. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, I wished I had a set list of all the things I could tell you to look for. For me, I'm... I have a background in psych, so I'm a behavioralist, so I, I tune in and I pay attention to that response I get from the people I'm working with. Um, you know, and if things go wrong, there's a few alternatives that obviously that a, a consumer has, a family member has. They can file a grievance, a formal grievance with the administrator to bring that to forefront to make certain that it's in writing and it's recorded. Okay. At which point when a grievance is filed, the ALF must act upon it. Okay. Okay. And if that doesn't work, then families have recourse because they can contact the state ombudsman okay. who oversee resident rights and are advocates for residents in an ALF. They can call the consumer hotline at the Agency for Healthcare Administration. They can contact Disability Rights Florida. In fact, every ALF is required to have a poster for families and residents to complain to the state. It has to be in a clearly visible area free, you know, access to it, um, along with the resident bill of rights. And so they have recourse. Some of the larger ALFs allow family members to actually contact the corporate office to file and lodge any kind of complaints and concerns with the corporate office. I think in my humble opinion, it starts with the administrator. And to be honest with you, that whole corporate shuffle for me doesn't work because if I can't get the administrator to respond at the facility level, I'm not going to probably have any luck at the corporate level at other, other than just maybe complain and make me feel better. All right. So lodge your complaints, many complaints in different areas, and see if it improves. Yep. Okay. Respond to this. Whenever we talk through ADRC about the options for grieving, complaining, um, legitimately support, you know, we go through the whole thing, this is almost invariably what we get back for a response. You know what I'm going to say. I'm afraid of retaliation. Um, I'm afraid they're going to get worse. I'm afraid they'll be mean to my mother. All ways of describing retaliation. Set that fear at ease. I think it's a valid concern. Mm. I think it's a valid concern, and I think it's a valid concern that needs to be addressed with the administrator. I can tell you one thing for certain. If it ever happened in my building, it would be the last time it would happen if I had anything to say about it. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, you know, it, it, it is a valid concern. I could give you case after case after case where people have been retaliated. And, that, and, and, mm. and if you looked at it from a percentage standpoint, it's a very, 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 very small percentage. But any percentage at all is not acceptable to me. Okay? So, I mean, I understand the fears and it's valid. I really don't know what to say other than, you know what, I think if it became that critical, I would put aside the retaliation part and make sure I was making my point loud and clear. Everybody. Persist, yes. I right. would persist, you know. Yeah. And if it got from persistence to raising hell, then... 
In this day and age of smartphones and photographs, people have shared photographs with us that were pretty frightening. Um, and I know there's all kinds of laws about recording people without their knowledge. But, um, yeah, don't don't let your need hold you hostage is usually my response. I agree. I agree. I mean, ALFs that do that, the, the, the people who work there shouldn't even be working there. And if the ALF supports it, they shouldn't be in business. State doesn't do a good enough job of closing ALFs down when they need to. But there's a lot of reasons for that. Okay. So we had talked in the, the, your last visit about something the state will do, and it's called a moratorium. Correct. And that means that the state has determined the people there are at risk of death if they continue staying. Did I get that right? It, they would be at risk for death or serious physical or emotional harm result therefrom. All right. So if your loved one, you find out their assisted living is under a moratorium. What would you do? Well, I'd probably give me pause for concern. In fact, here's something that I didn't mention in our last one. When you receive a moratorium by the state, not only can you not admit any new residents or allow any to come back from another level of care, but you also have to post the notice on the door of your building for everybody to see. Oh, yeah. It's a marketing person's nightmare, to be honest with you, because not only do you have to deal with that, but you also have the professional network within the community. Mm -hmm. Is a moratorium necessarily mean that the ALF's a bad ALF? Well, let me give you an example. There is a really, really, really well-run ALF that I know of in another part of the state that recently got a class one because they failed to honor a DNR. And it wasn't the facility's fault as much as it was the people's fault at the shift level who didn't know to pass on certain information. So, yes, eventually it's the facility's fault, but that one instance, does that make them a bad place? No. Okay, so if you see the sign, find out what happened. That is correct. Is it an isolated event or is it a pattern? In fact, the state has a term called pattern of deficiency, that if you continue to show a pattern of deficiency, they can revoke your license. Okay. And you would find that on the FloridaHealthFinder.gov website? You'd find all that on FloridaHealthFinder.gov, yep. Okay. So there's some things to do when you aren't happy with the ALF. Complain, see if you can find a resolution before picking up mom and taking her somewhere else. What if the assisted living facility has a problem with mom? Can they kick mom out? So, currently today, discharging a resident comes under a couple of different forms. For example, a resident under the current Florida law can terminate the contract with a 30-day notice to the ALF. So you can leave. So the, yeah. An ALF resident can leave any time, but the regulations in the contract state a 30-day notice is provided. Now, an ALF has the right to waive that 30-day notice. For example, if I had a resident who came to me in a family and they weren't unhappy, completely unhappy, and they wanted to leave tomorrow, I'd waive the 30-day notice and bid them a fond to do if we couldn't work our things out. Some ALFs don't do that. They stick you to it. The other document we look at is called the Florida... Uh, the Resident Bill of Rights, which in Florida statute is Florida Statute 429.28. And it says a resident has a right to a 45-day notice 
from the facility unless for medical reasons the resident requires another level of care and that move is authorized by a physician. Mm. It goes on to say for medical reasons or if the resident engages in behavior that's harmful or offensive to other residents and staff. At which point, that is what we call an emergency discharge. An emergency discharge is only authorized by a physician, and it waives the 45-day notice. There's no time period there. It just means that if I was to issue Edith a 45-day, or if I was to issue Edith a emergency discharge, it waives the 45-day notice, but we can discharge her as soon as we can make arrangements to get her to another setting. Okay. Okay, stop right there. And I'm running any number of phone calls through my head, and they go something like this. The ALF just called me, and they said I have to get my mother out today because she, and fill in the blank with some sort of distressed response that is she hit someone, she bit another resident, she pushed over a pregnant um, care provider. Comment? Don't we need a doc involved in that at that point? Anytime you're discharging somebody without the 45-day notice, it requires a physician's order. In fact, I can complicate things a little bit more for you. Good. Certain APRNs are allowed to issue an emergency discharge if they are autonomous. Okay. 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 Now, whomever signs that, we'll still call it the emergency discharge It has notice. to be a physician or... Do they have to have familiarity with the resident that's being discharged or just a, a so-called clinical review? The regulations do not address that, nor there is a process for that to okay. do so. It's kind of uh, like determining capacity or lack of okay. capacity. We don't have any of that. Okay. The regulations currently state that the decision on admission and discharge relies, bottom line, with the administrator of the ALF. Okay. So if you tell me administrator of the ALF, that I need to have my mom out today because she bit another resident, I'm within my mom's rights and mine to say, where's the signed document from the physician that supports that statement? Correct. In fact, when you discharge, whether it's emergency or a 45-day notice, it has to be put in writing, okay, and presented to the resident or their responsible party. So. Once mom has been given that notice, whether it's emergency or the 45-day, can you ask for them to reconsider? Sure you can. Does it work? Well, <laughs> is there? here's the deal. If you don't ask, the answer is always what? No. Okay. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to try to look at what's going on super quick. We got the phone call from the wife um, a little bit different, who um, said, they're going to kick my husband out of the dining room. Tell me why. Because he keeps touching the female server in inappropriate places, namely above the waist. Tell me what the server's doing. The server was leaning over him to put food down. Well, once you move along this voyage of Alzheimer's disease, your vision changes, and you start to process the world with your hands. So if you've got two lumps in front of you, and what are those? And you start processing with your hands. It's, it's not something that is sexual, quite frankly, in nature. So once we got the server to change her behavior, everything was fine. And 
that is where a good administrator comes into play, where they're willing to hear that, to evaluate what's going on around the situation that caused the biting, the pushing, the, the yelling, the hollering, the leaving. Right. right. We call it elopement. But anyway. So, and let me address that. Um, you're 100% correct. Whenever an event like that occurs, we always have to ask ourselves why. For example, in our world of assisted living, and still Edith probably would understand that, when we have a resident that is physically aggressive towards a staff member, the question always becomes, what did the staff member do to deserve it? Because a lot of times we find it's with their approach. Everybody has personal space. In my problem-solving checklist, when I have a problematic resident, discharge is the very last, the very last alternative on my list. Because I think it behooves us in favor of the resident and from a, a good standpoint of operating an ALF to look at all the different options that are out there. And I think sometimes it's easier for people just to get rid of the issue and the problem yes. than to deal with what's at hand. Right. You know, it, the One of the hardest jobs we have is how do we take care of six or 50 or 100 people in a group setting when they're all individuals and they all have individual needs? Then you factor in all your staff who are individuals and and have individual needs and individual mm-hmm. yeah. cultural references. So it, it's tricky business. Yeah. The memory care industry requires special care for special people. Um, right now, I currently don't choose to, to operate in a memory care setting. I love memory care residents. I like working with them. I love the family. It's, just, it's a very difficult level of care. And I've always, always told people and proved it recently to one of my clients, they can care for people in a 14-bed ALF better than they can in a 50. Mm-hmm. And the niche market in the future for memory care, as far as I'm concerned, is a smaller home. I've even designed one for 10 beds uh, because I think it's a good number. In fact, I designed one out in Winter Garden that was a 10-bed memory care just for that very reason. You can take care of 6 to 10 people with memory care issues far better than you can when you're dealing with uh, a large one. And what's happened in our industry is from a business standpoint, there was a demographic that got kicked around several years ago that said there'll be over 250,000 Floridians with some form of Alzheimer's by 2025, and therefore they start building all these units. Well, when you hit a 50 or 60 bed memory care, people fall through the cracks. It's yeah. just that simple. It's an operational thing that I've seen for years. And then you get too many at different levels in this voyage, right? I know um, however you choose to evaluate someone on their abilities, whatever system you use, putting someone who is at the beginning with someone who is processing the world with their hands is probably not going to work because the person that's processing through their hands very well may go into the beginning person's room and start helping themselves to things that look or feel or taste interesting. So smaller really is, and I, and I say that with caution, but I do agree that smaller is better. And I would even go so far as to say sometimes um, smaller needs to be weighed well with where is the person that you're about to admit? Are they going to fit? Because when it's smaller, mm-hmm. fit becomes critically important. Yeah, I agree. I, if Let's I was change if, the world. If Come I on. was looking at memory care, I would definitely be looking at a smaller setting. 
if you've gotten the 45-day notice, Mm -hmm. you got to leave. You couldn't work it out with the staff. Is it then harder to find a new place? Do you kind of get a stamp on your forehead as difficult? Well, that's an interesting question on how to answer. In a past career, I dealt with mental health residents. And if I took every person who presented for admission face value to what I saw on the paperwork, we would never have any residents. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of that has a couple of different issues there. I think that sometimes family members are not uh, being, what's the word I want to, forthcoming in the issues because they're afraid if they do, they'll get rejected. Mm. And I think on the other side of that is assisted living facilities don't ask enough questions. And I learned over the years with some of my residents, the best way to figure out about a resident is just to be straight up with people and ask them straight up. Nancy Kessaker's Tea and Cookies. Nancy Kessaker was one of the finest ALF core trainers Mm. back when the state governed that. And that was one of the concepts she would teach you. It is to have tea and cookies, and use that metaphor however you please, with the potential resident, right? Because you can kind of maintain things for a little while, but tea and cookies can kind of expose things. Can they feed themselves? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can they swallow? Right. (laughs) Um, One of the other things that comes up is this... We've admitted, we're admitted, we've been accepted for admission, we've paid X number of dollars, 1000 3000 those are not unheard of amounts, call it what you will, move-in fee, community fee, and then before long, within the first 45 days, they've issued a notice, now I've got to move my husband. Um, one caller in particular spent $9,000 in the space of a very, very few months on that very thing until she found a small ALF mm-hmm. that met his needs. Can you speak to that? Is, is, I, I really wish ALFs, if you're going to give somebody a 45-day notice within the first 45 days, give them back their move-in fee. I mean, is that unreasonable? Talk to me. Well, do you know why they call it a non-refundable community fee? Yes, I do, and I still disagree. <laughs> well, because they don't want to call it a deposit. Do you know why? I'm listening. Because under Florida Statute 429.24, they have to handle deposits in a certain way. Ah, yes, they do. And Mm. so nobody wants to handle deposits in a certain way, so they do a non-refundable community fee. Listen, I'm probably different than a lot of other administrators out there. That's why I love you. I would. Well, I (laughs) love you too, and, and we've worked well together over the years. I would probably be one of those people who would be more attuned to give their money back because, you know, I would rather they left me angry with their money than angry without my money. Yeah. Can you ask when you're looking at an ALF how many 45-day notices they've put out? Is that public record? The answer to that would be no, you can't. It's a fair question to ask. The state doesn't maintain any of that information. Mm. The only way you'd be able to figure that out is if the state went in on a complaint and then looked at the admission discharge log and the reasons for discharge. That would be the only data that I could see the state could really put their hands on 
that would show that, to be honest with you. That would be good information to be able it to have. It would be, but then the question is, why is it a 45-day notice? Was it because level of care? Was it because behavioral issue? Was it because they couldn't afford to pay? Did they outlive their money? Um, it, it's difficult if you get a 45-day notice. I would tell everybody, I guess one thing that I believe in is a plan A, plan B, and plan C. What if, what if, what if? What if this admission to the ALF doesn't go well? What if we have any kind of doubts on the front end? What if there's any bit of apprehension on the front end? If you have any of that emotional feelings on the front end, there's a good chance this is not going to work. So what's your plan B? Mm. You can't just have plan A. you got to have plan B. So when you're out there, I would tell any of your your listeners, that when you're out there looking, don't just look at one or two. Look at at what is available. Look at big, look at small, because you may need those other options. Just don't forget that, you know, once you take mom here to ALFA, that your problems are over because they still continue. And what is going to be your B plan? Okay, that's what I teach. Plan A, plan B, plan C. So I would always have a backup plan just in case. Great advice. Tom Campbell, ALFtrainer.com. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. You're welcome. And we could talk forever. We could. (laughs) Anytime you want to, ask me back. There we go. We have it on record. (laughs) Make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Informed Aging. Tell your family and friends. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Informed Aging, Instagram, and Twitter, Informed underscore Aging. If you want to email us, email informedagingpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was recorded at Digital Broadcasting's podcast studio. That's it for now. We're looking forward to our next visit. 